All right, welcome to episode number eight of the Insignificant Others podcast. I'm Brett Featherston, and I'm happy you're joining us. Please visit us at facebook.com slash insignificantotherspodcast and let us know your thoughts and ideas for future guests. So I'm really excited about our guest today, and he definitely emphasizes, well, along with all of our other guests, that the only insignificant part about the name of our podcast is the hosts. We're joined today by Russ Ramsland, and I'm hopeful that in November we'll be able to say that Russ is now representing the great state of Texas in Washington, D.C. in Congress. Russ has a great story, and he's a great storyteller. We'll hear why he's running for Congress, what campaigning has been like, and maybe some stories like how he got to meet Sir Paul McCartney. Right now, Russ is in a hotly contested race against 20-year incumbent Pete Sessions to represent Congressional District 32. We'll hear all about that in a moment, but first, before we do that, let me introduce my co-host, Rob Flint. Hello, Brett. Hello, Rob. How are you? Happy Leap Year Eve. It is Leap Year Eve. It is, it is Leap Year. Uh, well, I'd like to start off first. Uh, I know that, that you are going to join me in this, but um, the, the Park City's people did a nice write-up on us, uh, and it came out in the March edition of the Park City's people, um, a lady by the name of Britt Stafford. Uh, met with us and interviewed us and, and wrote a, a really Very nice, nice lady. a really yeah. nice piece. Um, you know, it's always nice when you get the paper on the driveway and, and one of your children picks it up and actually opens it up and thumbs through it and they see, you know, good old dad in the paper. Hey, there's dad. They, they actually think that I'm amounting to something, you know, <laughs> which is sometimes hard for them to fathom. Um, but, but in all seriousness, uh, thanks to the Park City's people for, for doing that. Um, so I mentioned that it's, it's Leap Year Eve. So I was thinking <clears throat> today uh, about Leap Year. Uh, it only comes around once every four years. And uh, I asked myself, who famous was born on Leap Year Day, February 29th? And, and I came up with three. three. Now, this is going to span the, the generation here. So uh, Ja Rule... Uh, a famous rapper, musician, and I think he's even an actor. Uh, Dinah Shore, so a lady that that our older listeners is certainly right. going to know who she is. And then Tony Robbins. Yeah, Tony, Gigantica. The Gigantica. Tony Robbins. So, so then I, I, you know, every time I see Tony Robbins uh, on television, you know, usually at about 2 a.m. during an infomercial, um, I, I think of, of him... Playing himself in the movie Shallow Hal. That's right. He, he did. Was, he was yeah. in Shallow Hal, um, and, and I really think that he got robbed out of uh, an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. That's just my opinion. <laughs> yes. But um, speaking of the Academy Awards, they're they're going on this evening, and actually, it's on as right. we're as we're recording this. Uh, one of one of my favorite names in in the movie making business is Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu, right? Um, That's a mouthful. And I hope that I yes, and I hope that I pronounced his name right. But he he could accomplish uh, something that that only two directors before him have ever accomplished in the in the history of the Academy Awards, and that is to win the Oscar for Best Director back to back. And when you think about all of the incredible 
you know, directors that are out there, uh, you know, Elia Kazan, you know, Clint yeah. Eastwood, you know. So, so who are the other two that got so it? So the, the other two are people that I had never heard of before, and I've heard of a couple of their movies. One was John Ford in 1940 oh, and yeah. 41. So he directed The Grapes of Wrath. Um, right. And the other movie that he directed was How Green Was My Valley. I don't think that I'm going to be looking that up on Netflix wait, wait. anytime soon. I think Natalie Wood. Warren Beatty, maybe? Per, per, perhaps, perhaps. No, I, I, actually. Are you being yeah, serious? Oh, I think gosh. it was Natalie Wood in that. Oh, per, yes, so perhaps Natalie Wood was in How Green Was My Valley. And the other is uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, and he directed A Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve, and I have seen All About Eve, and that was in 1949 and 1950. Interesting. So just, just a little bit of movie trivia on Oscars night. In a rito. So... Something that I see occasionally on television that every time it does come on TV and it's a commercial, I literally laugh out loud. Is the the commercial uh, the Settlers? Have you have you seen that commercial? It's a direct. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's a direct TV commercial, and I don't know if you've seen it, Russ, but basically it's 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 this 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 old kind of little house in the prairie setting. Um, that's mixed in kind of your your modern day urban development, <laughs> and and these kids are running around, you know, in, in in tattered clothing, and the dad's out on a plow, plow plowing the front yard, and and I and I literally laugh out loud every time I see it because I, I think of my children in that environment, <laughs> how how they would literally they probably would kill me yeah. if that was if that was how they had to live. Um, and they're so obedient. Those kids are always like, yes, father, you know, I'll okay. turn more butter. I love it when the wife says, that's, and you have your knee slapping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, anyway, so for those of you who have not seen any of those commercials, I, I encourage you to go out and check it out on YouTube. Just, just, just search awesome. for The Settlers. And then my last point is last week's Republican debate in Houston it was certainly the battle royal, a battle royale, packed full of fireworks. Um, you know, I, I consider myself to be someone who is um, politically aware. I guess you could say, um, if for, not misguided if at times, perhaps misguided. We can debate that later. Um, but but what I saw really was somewhat disconcerting, at least to me. Just just the decorum, and 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 I want to take out you know. The, the messaging that was exchanged or the dialogue and, and the, the people that were involved, but, but, but George Bush or President George Bush Sr. was in the audience. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah, I did. Um, and, his, and his wife, Barbara Bush, First Lady. And I just, I, the whole time I was watching this, I was thinking, I mean, what do you think he is thinking as he's watching this whole thing play out as it did? You know, is he sick to his stomach? You know, where where has this Republican Party kind of gone? What has it evolved into? Um, so I don't know the answer to that, but it just made me kind of take a pause and say, you know what, as a country, um, we're better than this. What do you think, yeah. Russ? Well, uh, it, it wasn't a very pretty sight. I only saw parts of it. You know, when you run a a campaign. The reason I look puzzled when you talked about ads, TV, and the settlers is because when you run a campaign, you don't see TV anymore. <laughs> That's true. In fact, my, my dog barks at me now when I come in at night. So uh, you, you don't see, but I did see just a little bit of that. And um, it, 
there wasn't much to admire about it. Yeah. No. So, so I want to hear all about your story, Russ, but let, let's start first of all is, is you're an educated man. You've got a, a Duke undergrad, Harvard MBA. So you're a smart guy. What made you decide to want to go to Washington? Well, I fell into a bad company. <laughs> Pure pressure. Uh, yeah. No, actually, uh, you know, I, I started a group in 2009 called the Park City Preston Hollow Leadership Forum, and we do what I call political education. We had three people at the first meeting at a mattress store on Oak Lawn, and the next month we had three people, and the month after that we were up to four people, and the month after that we were back to three people. It was real unheralded success, but today there's 1,200 members, and probably 700 of them are truly active. And we had meetings once a month, and, you know, we'd have 150 people at every one of them. So it, uh, it, it really did a lot. But in the course of that, uh, my family began to have a lot of uh, political discussions around our house. And one night, my then 11-year-old uh, said, well, Daddy, uh, you know, what, what's this national debt I hear you ranting about? And uh, it was getting almost as much airtime as, you know, put, put down your cell phone at that point. And she said, uh, she said what, what is that? And I said, well, Punkin, you know, the government um, doesn't have enough, uh, wants to spend more money than, than it has. She said, well, how much money does the government have? I said, well, actually, it doesn't have any. Uh, she says, well, how does he get it? I said, well, he gets it from the taxpayers in the form of taxes. And then right. If it doesn't have enough, it borrows the rest from China, and it signs your name on the note. Well, she didn't like that. She said, well, how much do I owe? And I said, well, Punkin, at this point, you owe about $155,000. So unknown to me, she went upstairs to figure out what that meant. And she came down in about 20 minutes, and she was almost in tears. I don't know, rage, frustration, whatever. And she said, Daddy, I, I figured this out. And she figured it out in her coin of the realm, which was babysitting. She babysits for $5 an hour, or she did that. And she said, Daddy, I'm going to have to babysit every single night, seven nights a week for three hours every night. I'm not going to get to go to any more birthday parties. I'm not going to get to have dinner with you and Mommy anymore. Um, I'm not going to get to do sleepovers. And Daddy, I'm going to have to do that for the next 28.3 years. And and that is just straight line the national debt divided by the population of the divided US. by the number of taxpayers. Now taxpayer, hundred and fifty five thousand dollars per taxpayer. Well, first of all, that's a very smart girl. She took it that far, but oh, she's <laughs> she's a little different. She speaks three languages fluently, and you know, I mean, this one's she's just off on her own, off on her own deal. But no, she figured out. I didn't have the heart to tell her she forgot about taxes. But uh, <laughs> the, it's the more like 40 is, years. Yeah. Well, but it just made me so angry. I said, you know, wow, we have allowed these people to do this to our children. This is just outrageous. And you take and you couple that with the fact that our congressman now in the in the five major scorecard, conservative scorecards, gets a D rating. D is in dog. Even in the age of common core, D is nearly failing. And yet all our other. Dallas area congressmen get A's and B's for the most part. And I just said, you know, this, this just can't be, mm -hmm. this just can't be. So I decided to get into this mess. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit here about, uh, about Pete Sessions. So Pete Sessions is a 20 year incumbent, 
Right. And first of all, I am, I am of the ilk that politics was never, ever intended to be a career. So I I'm, I'm, think there should be some firm uh, term limits there. So yep. I pretty much get on the bandwagon of never, ever voting for an incumbent. But when, when you look at his record, like you said, the conservative watchdog group gave him the lowest score out of all Dallas area Republicans, which was a 68.4. The conservative review gave Sessions a failing grade, uh, along with many other of the conservative watchdog groups. So how, and on top of that, Pete actually owns a home in Florida. There's a lot of questions about really where his homestead is now. How can he even be a congressman in, in Dallas if he doesn't live here? Well, actually, for a while, he had a little ramshackle uh, place down on, on Lower Greenville. It was a $500 a month apartment. Over in the village. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. didn't even have a washer-dryer hookup. And when Katrina Pearson took him on, it kind of blew it wide open because they took a camera over there and they started talking to the neighbors. And the neighbors were like, honey, you better come in out of the sun. Ain't no congressman live there. And it just went on and on and on. Well, Pete got embarrassed and he finally ended up buying a townhome now down in Uptown on Thomas. But you know, it's the same deal. His homestead is in Winter Park, Florida. That's where his tax home is. But he maintains a facade here so that at least he's got, you know, it's kind of like the guy that keeps one toe on the floor in the billiard game, and, and uh, that's, that's kind of the deal. But, uh, no, and, and in fact, at the same time that he got married and moved down there, he quit filing his travel reports on a per-trip basis and started filing them in bulk so you could no longer tell exactly where he's filing on his congressional stipend. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, if I'm correct, his wife can't even vote for him. That is correct. I, I had one very funny guy out in Rowlett who learned that, and he goes, well, if his wife's not going to vote for him, why in the world should I be voting for him? Yeah. But, uh, no, her driver's license and uh, her voter registration is all in Florida, of course. Yeah, yeah. Again, a good reason not to vote for the incumbents. So uh, so let's get back to, to kind of the start of your story. You grew up in West Texas, right? Grew up in Midland, correct. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about what growing up in Midland was like. Well, actually, Midland was a really fun and interesting place, you know. Uh, there was a lot of money out there. The bushes were out there. And a bunch of folks from, from back east had originally come out and gotten in the oil business there. And so it was a very interesting um, meeting of the East and the West uh, in the whole environment of the wide open wild spaces of the oil patch. And uh, just great, great place to, to grow up. Um, I, I worked in the oil patch growing up and worked on ranches. And, uh, you know, I remember going into Odessa, Texas to watch big time wrestling on Friday night <laughs> live at the Coliseum. So it was, a, it was a great place, but it was also a very interesting, sophisticated place, and people believed you could do anything in the world in this country then, and uh, there have been people in Midland that won the Kentucky Derby. We got involved in a racing venture and won the Indy 500 two out of three years. I mean, it's, well, there's just no end to what you could, you could do if you really wanted to do it. So that was where I came from. Okay, and, and you went to Duke for your undergrad. So. Correct. How did you choose Duke? I mean, not that it's that's that's not a difficult discussion. I'm I'm, I'm assuming you couldn't get into Texas Tech, so that's you it. had to go to Duke. Uh, why'd you choose Duke? Well, my granddad had lived out in California, and I'd spent time out there. We lived for Canada in a year uh, in my junior year of high school, and so I'd spent 
time up in that neck of the woods. We'd driven through all 48 states uh, as kids. My Every summer, my parents would load us up, and we would just drive. So we had driven through every state in the Union, uh, lower 48 states. My sisters had gone to school in the Northeast, and I had just never spent any time in the South. So I thought, wow, this would be an opportunity to learn a whole new part of the country. And I started looking at schools out there. I looked at Vanderbilt, and I looked at Clemson, looked at Duke. There's a whole bunch of them. And I ended up, you know, Duke was the fool that let me in. So there it was. (laughs) (laughs) And then Harvard MBA. So uh, how did the people in Boston relate to you? Well, that's an interesting question. We had a lot of fun in Boston. I explained to them on the first day that Texas was like the Mormon church. And we all felt obligated to spend two years out doing missionary work for people who weren't fortunate enough to be born in Texas. (laughs) And I was taking my tuition as a charitable deduction on my taxes. (laughs) And uh, some of them had a sense of humor, and some of them were just wildly offended. But, no, we really enjoyed it. And uh, we'd make Mexican food a lot of times on Friday nights. We uh, had, in my apartment, it got dubbed Floyd's Filthy Free Holy Factory Library and Hall of Fame. And uh, we'd cook Mexican food and make margaritas. And people just came and ate it up. We had a great time. I enjoyed it for two years. The history is fabulous. Uh, the area is is very, very interesting. Uh, people in Midland uh, were amazed I didn't come home a communist. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it was fun. It's not my cup of tea to live there, but it was fun to be there for two years. So when you, when you graduated from from Harvard with your MBA, what was what was your your first foray out of the world on your own? Well, actually, Harvard wasn't my first foray. What happened, um, I went and worked on Capitol Hill a little bit when I got out of Duke for George Mahon. And uh, we worked on Diego Garcia, and we worked on oil and gas legislation. But I just didn't really like Washington. I didn't like the culture. Uh, it was very much a uh, power, money, and hey, look at me culture. Uh, you know what that's like. You yeah. worked on the Hill. And um, so then I worked for some guys who were starting a, uh, a crude oil shipping company in Saudi Arabia. And they wanted to establish this thing. And keep in mind, this is 1976. So you're only three years after the Arab oil embargo. So it was very, very primitive. And I spent some time in Zurich and London and Riyadh and Jeddah helping them do that. And then uh, they sent me on another deal into the South Pacific. We worked on a ranching venture down there. It didn't go so well. Uh, a lot of people started shooting guns at each other, and uh, I left without my luggage and uh, got the last plane out. So when I arrived at Harvard, I was the only guy who'd been shot at in my initial <laughs> class. Uh, so Harvard was really sort of uh, later, a little later on. But when I got out of Harvard, I came back to West Texas, wanted to get in the oil and gas business. You know, prices were great. Things were doing well. Uh, worked a little bit in the Reagan uh, election. Uh, in, in that campaign, uh, started developing some commercial office building stuff out there, uh, owned and built a building and owned it for 20 years and operated. Uh, then, uh, got a call one day for some guys that wanted me to come up and visit about starting a venture to, uh, do things on the space shuttle with MIT, NASA, and some folks in the white house. And, uh, we, we were going to grow very advanced semiconductor materials for the Star Wars project. So I spent a lot of time uh, going in and out of Washington and New York in those days. Now, now looking back on, on your experience now, would you ever thought that you would be running for Congress? Oh, my gosh, no. No, so, I mean, uh, but you look at my resume, it's a wreck, so why not? Yeah. <laughs> 
But I, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm just, the beauty of the American dream is you can do it just almost whatever you want. If, if you can, you know, figure out how to make a little money doing it, you can just go have adventure after yeah. adventure. I, yeah. I had a restaurant in London for 18 years. Yeah. So you get, you were in the semiconductor business, you were in oil and gas. How did you get in the restaurant business? Well, that really was falling in with bad company. I fell in with a, a bunch of uh, guys. Uh, there was a group called the Society of International Business Fellows. And we had to go to London uh, for a weekend as part of our inauguration. And um, everybody over there goes, you know, oh, God, no text mix here. This is awful. We're going to die. And uh, because I'd spent a lot of time in London, I said, well, there's a place that's really awful. And they said, well, where's the very best Tex-Mex? I said, 4,687 miles west of here. <laughs> but they wanted to go, so we did. And on the way home, uh, I got thinking about that. I thought, you know, the Hard Rock Cafe is just the myth of American rock and roll with a very bad hamburger. Yeah. And uh, I thought, you know, if you did something really genuine and real uh, and really Texan, the myth of Texas is as strong as the myth of rock and roll worldwide. Uh, there are a lot of people that hate Americans and love Texans. Yeah. And so um, I, I got talking to some guys back here, and one thing led to another, and it finally seemed like a good idea. And so we, we went and we did it. And that you is it still open? You had it for 18 years, We right? had it for 18 years. I made 99 trips to, uh, to London in 18 years. And as B.B. King says, the thrill is gone. And so in June of 2012, I finally shut it down. I wasn't going to sell it because we had a great name. It was world-renowned, really, and uh, called the Texas Embassy Cantina. It was right off of Trafalgar Square, and we had a lot of fun stuff there. Uh, you know, Kenny Rogers showed up and announced one night and sang with a band. <coughs> Willie uh, came in and got a T-shirt and played at the Barbican, and the next day we had the line around the block for people who wanted our T-shirts and uh, Paul McCartney had his birthday party there, and it, it was fun. It was kind of like having a Ferrari. You know, it remembers better than it lived. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, in 2012, I'd had about all that good fun, and so uh, so we, I was able to uh, uh, sell the lease because in London you get 30, 40, 50 year leases, and uh, this was a uh, this was a beautiful building. It was ironically enough, it was the building where the Titanic had its headquarters. Uh, the White Star shipping lines. Everybody who died came up to where we made flour tortillas, bought their ticket, went out and drowned. And uh, so uh, it, it was It was a fun thing, and it was great to have done. And, boy, I sure gained a huge uh, regard for restaurateurs and what they have to go yeah. through. So, so you shared with me earlier uh, a story about the, the decorations for the restaurant. Oh. Uh, please, please tell that. That is wonderful. Well, the, the restaurant downstairs looked like an old Mexican piazza, and we'd gone down to Monterey and gotten a bunch of old doors and windows. They were wrecking out the barrios in Monterey. But upstairs, it was an 1860s, 1870s saloon. So we went around and we bought up all these old deer heads that must have been 60, 70, 80 years old. I mean, you know, the, if the ear had been chewed off by a mouse, then it was a candidate. And if an eyeball was missing, it was even better. And if the uh, seams under the eyes had split and the fur was coming off, it was perfect. So we got about seven or eight of those. And we also bought a big, long horn steer head, and we crated them all up and sent them over there. Well, I'm over there at the job site one day, and I get this call from Her Majesty's Customs. And he goes, oh, Mr. Romsley, this is Sergeant McVeigh. I was wondering if you could pop out to Heathrow and have a quick 
chat with us. I said, well, what's, what's going on? He said, oh, we've got a crate here of uh, dead animals. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, dead animals? Oh, and then I realized, oh, these, these heads. I said, well, are you you're going to send them in? Oh, no, there's some questions in paperwork, actually. So I went out to Heathrow Airport, this big, huge uh, uh, building that you could have put four 707s in, and uh, we opened up the crate, Sergeant McVeigh and his uh, adjunct, and uh, it was all about paperwork in England, all about paperwork. I'd figured this out right away. So they wanted to know, uh, what did each of these animals die of, and where were they when they died? I mean, we have to fill these forms out, you know. So I didn't blink an eye. I just said, oh, well, that one right there. I said, that was, that was down on Buzz Mills Ridge near San Angelo. It was a 300-yard shot. He was running across the mesa left to right. First shot was high. Second shot, a little bit. Third shot, nailed him. And Boy, this guy just writing away every detail. <laughs> and I went through, and I proceeded to tell these guys how I murdered every one of these animals, totally just out of thin air. And they were just writing away and scribbling. And then we finally get to the uh, Longhorn Steerhead, and uh, McVeigh goes, oh, and what about the bison? I said, what bison? He goes, is that? I said, oh, 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 you mean that? That's a longhorn steer. Oh, yes, mm, quite, yes. I said, well, um, actually, they're pretty stupid. So I just walked right up to him, pulled the forty-five out of my holster, put it in his left ear, and pulled the trigger. <laughs> Dropped him like a hammer. Well, these guys are just so appalled. They can hardly stand it, but they're <laughs> scribbling away. And so I said, any more questions? He goes, oh, no, no, I think that will be quite satisfactory. Thank you. So as I'm walking out of here, I hear these two guys talking, and one of them turns to the other one, and he goes, blimey, he's a regular Buffalo Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had a lot of those fun experiences. And that's the Texas Embassy Cantina. Right. Yeah, I wish it was still there. Yeah, well, it was fun. So I, th I think a lot of our listeners would be curious to know, what's it like running – a campaign, being in the throes of running for, you know, Congress. What is your, what is a typical day like for you? Um, how long does it last? Those kinds of things. Well, there is no typical day because a campaign is one long uh, drill of running everywhere with your hair on fire. Mm -hmm. uh, you get up in the morning and you're going to be dealing with a uh, press release or you're going to be dealing with part of the accounting or FEC reporting issues with your accountants or you've got volunteers you've got to get organized and going. You've got uh, a mail strategy. You've got money raising to do. You've got to call folks. And the money raising is awful. I hate that part, but you have to. And it just goes on all day long. It is yeah. just one long slog and then that night you're out at meetings uh at meet and greets yeah and you know you got to be fresh as a daisy and just happy to be there yeah and that goes until 9 10 11 o'clock at night and then you're up again the next morning six o'clock hmm. and it it goes that way at least six days away as i we were saying before this thing started i wasn't kidding my dog now barks at me when i come in the door wondering who i am <laughs> So what's been the, uh, the, the biggest challenge about campaigning or the biggest surprise for you as you've gone through this? Hmm, biggest surprise, I would say, is uh, I've never had um, such a large group of really enthusiastic, dedicated volunteers. Yeah. And that's good news and bad news. Uh, it's great, heartwarming, wonderful news on one end. But on the other hand, 
everybody wants to be involved in every decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out to, in, in some cases, sort of be an ad hoc committee of 50 all chiming in. And until you, you put an end to it, nothing ever gets done. You know, cycle time is a huge problem. And uh, so, but as things have gone along, everyone has sort of settled into their own routine in their own area and stuff like that. So that's, that's worked out. But um, it, it's, it's been a challenge to, to get everybody to all kind of head the same direction and everybody to learn other people's strong points. And they're all volunteers. So it's, it's different. How, how large is your, your staff at what point? At what time? At what? Well, day? I mean, I guess right now. I mean, t- you know, it, it's coming down to decision day, right? So, well, yeah, it, because it's a volunteer army, uh, you know, it can be it can be sixty, seventy, eighty people yeah. on a day. Yeah, uh, we had we had thirteen people over at my Redeemer uh, for early voting, and uh, uh, they were th- there was a long line out the door, and all these thirteen people would be spread up and down the line. And these poor voters would come from one of my people to the next one. And when they finally got to me, it was almost with tears of relief. At least they knew they were at the end of the gauntlet. You know? <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, it's, we have, we have door knocked or, uh, hung door hangers on over 90,000 homes. Wow. We have made about 10,000 calls into the district. We have put out seven or eight mailers to about 30,000 people a mailer, um, it's it's amazing these the volunteer yeah. effort that people have been willing to step forward and do. So describe for us uh, District Thirty Two exactly where that is. District Thirty Two sort of starts in Uptown. It goes more or less north along the Tollway. Sometimes it's to the west. Sometimes it's to the east. But it goes sort of north along the Tollway to the Collin County line. Then it heads east. It goes all the way over to Wiley and Saxe, and over there it kind of goes up into Collin County a little bit. And then it comes back down to Rowlett. Uh, it encompasses uh, Garland. It comes back and uh, parts of Lake Highlands, and then down. It swoops down into uh, parts of Lakewood, and then swings back around um, in- into Uptown. Now, when you said it, it, it headed east, I, it doesn't go as far east as Winter Park, Florida? Uh, no, no, <laughs> okay. it stops well short. Okay, okay. I, I, I just want to make sure I was I was clear. You you were pretty clear. On that. Okay. that does sound like some gerrymandering yes. drawing up that district. Yes. Vote. So, so let let's kind of uh, look at our crystal ball and flash forward. It's uh, November. You've won the election. What are the the big issues? What do you want to tackle first? Well, I think there's a lot of discussions that we've got to start at the national level. And if we don't start talking about some of these things at the national level, we're never going to solve them. You know, the whole point of politically correct was to to make it where we couldn't talk about certain topics. Politically correct has its root in the Soviet Union, by the way. People don't realize that's where politically correct started, uh, the whole concept of it. And uh, so um, we've got to have that discussion. I think we need to start having a real conversation about sincere term limits. Yeah. If we don't start talking about term limits, we'll never get legislation. We're going to have to go through a couple or three or four attempts on legislation before we finally get it to the floor. But little by little, if we will talk about it at the national level, the American people will start badgering and pushing and pressuring their representatives, and we've got a shot to put through some term limits. And at some point, we ought to even be talking about, I think, a constitutional amendment to make sure that doesn't go away. 
But um, I think term limits are critically important. I think we need to talk about the national debt in a whole new way. People talk about balanced budget amendment. Um, the fact of the matter is we have a balanced budget now. It's just balanced with debt. Right. But from a finance point of view, it's a balanced budget. I think what we need to do is we need to peg spending to a percentage of the gross domestic product. And I would suggest 15 or 16%. This year, we're at 22 If we peg it down there, there's something called Hassler's Law. And it says basically year in and year out, we collect about 19%. Whether the tax rates go up or down or whatever we do, it's about 19%. So if we pegged government spending to 15%, let's say, then we would have some to start paying down the national debt. But even more important, think about this. We have totally realigned our government's incentives. Right now, the government has no incentive to constrain spending. But if they were tied to 15%, the only way that they could have more dollars would be to pass pro-growth policies to grow the economy. Now we have realigned our government's interest with our interest out here. Right. So I think we need to start talking about all these kinds of things. We need to get rid of Obamacare. I mean, that's yeah. a ridiculous. You know, in, uh, when I was in England, over the 18 years that we were there, I watched what happened to my employees, and it made you sick as the National Health Service took over. We, uh, you, you realize pretty quickly that it, it turns health care into veterinary medicine. And, and by that, I mean um, the, the doctor becomes a veterinarian, the government becomes the owner, and you're the dog. Yeah. And that's kind of how it works. Uh, and it's very ugly. In fact, uh, no kidding, we actually took good care of a veterinarian over there. We gave him free margaritas, he and his wife, and would comp their meals. And the reason was because the National Health Service was so bad with their x-ray machines uh, if you could walk into the emergency room with an x-ray, they could set your bone. But you would have a three-day wait to get the x-ray. So we took good care of a veterinarian that had a great x-ray machine, and he would, you know, if somebody slipped on our stairs and broke a bone, we could we could get an x-ray, x-ray right away. I mean, it's nuts, it's but that's the way it works. So that's important. Uh, I think the national debt's a, a very important spending. Uh, I think you actually have to tie the national debt and our government spending and our tax reform all together so that you're, you're aligning all of those things in the same direction and you're not treating them as three totally disparate topics because they're not. Yeah. And, and you know, the big thing, like, like your daughter found out very quickly, is the debt is so out of control, it's going to stymie any growth we have in the future if we don't get it under control and start getting it getting it down to a level with, you know, a lot of zeros off the end of that. Well, think about it this way. Right now, our, our, we spend about $600 billion on our national defense. Take a $20 trillion national debt that we're just about at and put a 5% interest rate on it. That's a trillion dollars. Right. We're now wow. going to spend more on just interest, not debt reduction, just interest, one and a half times of what we spend on national defense. That's crazy. It's totally insane. Totally and, insane. And it's very easy, uh, well, at least for somebody like me, to point the finger at Obama and the Democrats for doing it. 
But the Republicans that are in office right now are just as complicit, mm-hmm. I think. Totally. Because it, they've been there and, and let it happen. Yep. And, and Well, when Pete Sessions went there, the debt was $5.5 trillion. Today it's $20 trillion. He has voted for and facilitated almost all of it. Yep. And the truth of the matter is the Republican leadership is on board for big government. They just object to the label that's getting to run it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I think I think a, a big problem is the process and the manner in which this all happens and why it has happened. Um, when I was up there, you know, there there obviously there's the appropriations process and there's committee hearings and and there's you know certainly legislation that's debated and voted on on, on you know the, in the House and the Senate. But but what people really don't realize is is the the reconciliation process that occurs on both sides to make these these bills become laws that are then you know sent to the president and, and the process is so secretive um, and and nobody knows how it happens and and, and it, you know one day you w- you wake up you go to the office and there's this book that's about you know um, five <coughs> excuse me you know what. Twelve inches thick. That's that 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 is that is the spending the appropriations for, you know, a certain fiscal year. And you're you know anybody with any common sense just scratches their head and says how how does this happen? Um, and and you're right. Republicans and Democrats, in my opinion, are, are complicit in this in today's you know congressional environment. But the process that's that's a tough nut to crack. It, well, I think you have to return to regular order. And, and, you know, we hear a lot about that, but when you get down to it, the reason they threw Boehner out um, uh, or managed to get Boehner thrown out um, and and that they flocked behind Daniel Webster is that the House is being run really today as a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. It's a dictatorship of the Speaker and the head of the Rules Committee, who happens to be Pete Sessions. Pete controls everything that goes to the floor. He controls what gets to go to the floor, what amendments can be made, how long it gets to be heard, what other bills are going to and get to come. I don't in mean to interrupt you. People don't realize how important and how you know, absolutely how you know how that shapes the debate. What is discussed, what's not discussed, and the manner it's discussed. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, but you're exactly right. It's kind right. of one of those things that people really don't think about or know about. That, that's exactly right. The Every Student Succeeds Act was a pre- perfect example. Um, there were a lot of amendments that, that wanted to come to the floor that would have made that a true step forward. But in fact, Pete kept the A-plus amendment and others just like it, so that what we really ended up with was a huge education bill that just embeds Common Core even deeper into the system. Uh, it renames it. It now calls it College and Career Ready Standards, but it's the exact same thing. And uh, and now it's embedded until 2021, which is into the second term of our next president. And what's really sad about that is that that uh, congressional mandate for all of that actually ended with George Bush. They've been letting this guy, this president, continue to run all this stuff with actually any without any congressional authorization. And now they've given him authorization. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. So. It, that kind of takes me to a couple other subjects we're talking about. It. First of all, all the uh, executive orders that Obama's put out. And yep. I'm kind of curious as what you intend to do to that. And and to your point on these laws that do get passed, 
What are your thoughts on the line item veto? Well, I, I don't have any problem with the line item veto. I think sometimes that may be the only way you can deal with it. But I don't have any problem with Congress exercising the power of the purse either. You right. Know? I mean, the fact of the matter is this Congress has totally abrogated its responsibilities. Uh, Madison said in the Federalist Paper number 58 that uh, the power of the purse is the most powerful weapon with which any constitution can arm the direct representatives of the people. And what have these guys done with it? Zero. Mm -hmm. Absolutely zero. In fact, they put in this huge omnibus spending bill so that they can hand the president a weapon that if he vetoes just that one bill and then says, oh, well, the Republicans shut down the government, it's done. So the Republican leadership then badgers their own people into voting for this one huge gumball omnibus yeah. spending that's, bill. That, that's, the, yeah. that's what I was referring that, to. Yeah, and, and, but see, regular order, regular order says, you know what, instead of considering it on day 360, yes. let's start on day one. Twelve separate spending bills, one for each department of the government, and and it just marches through the I was up there not long ago and I was talking to some of these guys and I go, nobody goes to subcommittee and committee hearings anymore because it doesn't matter. It's yeah. whatever the speaker tells the rules committee to put on the floor. And nobody it, else has any say so anymore. And that's the status that's the status quo up there now. Yep. And, and and unfortunately, even when I was up there, that wasn't necessarily the case. Yeah. And it, it really started coming to be, if you will, in the early aughts where where Congress just shirked its duties. Totally. Um, and, and it's just, it's craziness. Yep. And people need to start talking about this. Yes. And yes, you're absolutely right. All right. Switching topics on you now, Russ. Uh, what are your thoughts on immigration? That seems to be a, a, a big topic, especially in all the debates. But uh, I'm curious as to where you stand on that. Well, I, I don't believe in amnesty. And it's not because I want to persecute anyone's um, yard man or, or maid. But the fact of the matter is uh, there's a number of real problems with amnesty. The first problem with amnesty is that it's a national security problem. We already mm -hmm. have more ISIS cells in North, or excuse me, not just necessarily ISIS. We have more known sleeper cells in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, according to a lot of the intelligence guys around here, than anywhere else in the country except Michigan. <laughs> and that's because we have a radicalized mosque in Richardson. We have a radicalized mosque over in Arlington. Um, there's a lot of mosques around. In fact, there's 70 mosques around here within a 40-mile radius, and a lot of them are just fine. But the radicalized ones are not. But if you start doing amnesty now, these guys are here, mm -hmm. and they are here, and they have a whole lot more freedom to start forming uh, bigger cells or lone wolf operations, so it's a national security problem. The second problem is that it's a huge economic problem because you've got the working poor and, and the middle class who are having to pay taxes so that people who came here illegally and are driving down the working poor and the middle class wages – can have free schooling, can have free hospitals, can have, it's just grossly unfair to Americans. What are we doing here? Um, we can go on and on about why, why this, is a bad, uh, this is a bad thing, but the point is I am not an amnesty guy. Now, here's what I think you have to do, though. I think you first have to secure the border. Uh, once you secure the border, oh, one other thing about offering amnesty. You create a huge incentive to come rush the border. You make border security even that much harder. So um, the first thing you have to do is say, we're not going to grant amnesty, and we're going to secure the border. 
then you have to start doing something about reducing the, the allure and the attraction. And you probably do that by first requiring all government contractors and subcontractors to use E-Verify. And you cut off uh, the free health care. And you cut off the free schooling. And you, you make this to where being here illegally is not a good thing. Yeah. And a lot of those people will. Go home. Actually, we're we're experiencing a net outflow right now of illegals. Really? Yeah. That that was uh, something we were talking to some of the guys down the border about. And they said, "Oh yeah, we're having a net outflow right now because the economy here isn't in, in, uh, good enough to to absorb them all now." And so uh, the, a lot of them will go home. A lot of them will go home, and uh, we we can begin to get this situation under control. You know, but, it's interesting. I heard a, a friend of mine was talking to some border guards. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that, uh, it, it, first of all, when everybody talks about the southern border, everybody, uh, it seems like most people start thinking about the Mexican illegal aliens that are coming across. And these southern border guards were saying, we don't even mess with the Mexicans. It's the Asians. There are so many Asians right now that are coming across the, the Mexican border. Yeah. They said they're the ones that we really are, are paying attention to. Well, and that 30, surprised me. 30% of the people coming across the border right now are from the Middle East. How good does that make you feel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a, huge, uh, it's a huge problem. And here again, you know, they just passed this huge omnibus spending bill. What's in it? $100 million extra for the Office of Syrian Refugee Resettlement so we can have even more unvetted Syrians here. What are these people thinking? Hmm. That's craziness. It's craziness. The... Uh so, um, like I said, immigration's been a big topic in the Republican debates. Yep. Are, are you at a point yet where you're endorsing one of the candidates? No, I'm really not. I mean, I, I have my own personal private leanings, but um, I think the American people can, can make their own decisions, and they don't need my help. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Donald Trump made a comment in the, in the, about the wall, and when the Pope was in Mexico, he makes a comment, and, it, and it's... It's kind of funny, first of all, that the, the Pope's getting involved in American politics, which he probably shouldn't. Yep. And then second of all, it's, it's almost a hypocritical statement because of the wall around the Vatican. Vatican is, yeah. Was, was first, it's a Leonine wall, so it was uh, designed to keep the marauding Saracens, the Saracens with a C, which were Muslims. Yes. They were coming into sure. Vatican City. Sure. And it's, it's not, that's why it's, you know, you hear uh, Cruz and Rubio talking about it a lot because they're they're Hispanic. It's it's not the ha- Hispanic immigration; it's the security. Like you said, thirty percent of the illegal aliens coming across now are Middle East. That's that's a scary statistic. That's a very scary statistic, but that's what's happening. Oh my goodness! So, um, so we talked about immigration, talked about Obamacare, term limits, uh, and the debt. Definitely. Yep. Uh, Talk a little bit about your the regulatory platform about uh, about the executive orders. It seems like uh, Obama's gotten a little bit happy with that power lately. Well, of course, the Congress has had plenty of opportunity to use the power of the purse, and every time the the uh, president exceeds his authority, they just should be cutting off the money, but they're not. You know, we gave them the House in 2010, the Republicans the House in 2010. We gave them the Senate in 2014. Both times they said, oh, we're going to end Obamacare, we're going to stop all this spending, we're going to stop all this overregulation, blah, blah, blah. 
And then they get back on the airplane, they go back to Washington, and they forget all this. And um, I think it's, it's time that – I'll say this for Ted Cruz. He's done what he said he was going to do. Yeah. And I really like that. I really admire that. And we need more people who will do that. And there are people up there who will stand up. There are just not enough of them yet. Yep. So uh, I, I think that uh, the power of the purse is one of the first ways that we shut down this executive uh, order melee that we've got going on. Um, it, the, the idea of punting to the courts is is just abrogate. Congress was actually supposed to be the most powerful of the three arms of government. And instead, we've got this total white flag surrender Congress. And that's just, you know, God, it's unbelievable. It's, so, uh, you know, first of all, thank you for sharing all of this, uh, your campaigning and everything that's going on with that. Really appreciate it. So tell us a little bit when you're not campaigning and when you're not flying back and forth to London, uh, what do you like doing in your, in your downtime? What's not campaigning? I've forgotten. What <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I love to do all kinds of things. Uh, cars are a, a real avid interest of mine. Um, shooting. Okay. What kind of cars? Oh, I've been doing cars all my life. I mean, I, I raced a Formula Ford for a few years. My dad actually raced when I was a little kid. That's where I first learned it. He had an Oscar, he and another guy. And uh, then we formed a racing team with Jim Hall uh, back in 1978, and we won the Indy in 78 and again in 80. Hmm. Um, so I've, I've always had an interest in that. I've, I've had all kinds. Most of my really fun cars have been used cars because I know enough about them that I can evaluate a used car pretty good. So I, I bought an old used Ferrari one time, had it for about nine years. Boy, that was a trip. And, um, you know, I've had a, I bought a Porsche used and enjoyed that. I had a Lotus used and enjoyed that. And so I've just had all kinds of great. I love cars. I just think they're, they're really uh, fun. I love guns. Uh, I got a lot of. Uh, interesting guns. Uh, in fact, if you go to my website, uh, ramslandforcongress.com, you can uh, go to the media button, and about the third video down, um, you'll see the only really fun thing I've done on the whole campaign, and that is to uh, shoot cans of Tamarite underneath boxes labeled Obamacare and debt and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. It was a great afternoon. We just blew all this tamarite up under these boxes. It's uh, it's a fun video. It was really good. <laughs> uh, have you met someone while campaigning? You know, no matter what the forum, um, that that said something to you that that really resonated, and and you still think about what that person said yes. at that point in time. I've actually had. Two very interesting, well, two very interesting questions and one kind of fun. When I had this lovely little old lady came up to me, she's probably in her mid-90s, and she had heard me talk for a while, and she walked up to me and she goes, why are you doing this? You seem like such a nice man. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, wow, you know, this is a business where 97% of them give the rest of them a bad name, right? But... um, I've had two very interesting questions. One came from a mayor, and I will not say of which town. Uh, I will say it wasn't Dallas. And uh, the mayor said, Russ, he said, Pete Sessions has been there 20 years. He's really powerful. He's got all this stroke. 
He could really bring home the bacon, Russ. How are you as a new guy going to be able to bring home the bacon? <laughs> I said, well, Mary, with all due respect, that's the wrong question. He goes, huh? I said, it's the wrong question. You've forgotten. It's your bacon to begin with. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be asking, who do I want to grovel in front of to get my own bacon back? Your question ought to be, who's going to help me keep more of my own bacon right here in the first place? Mm -hmm. And that was very interesting. It led to a very long discussion with the mayor. <laughs> Uh, I also had a really interesting question from one of the most perceptive questions from an AMVET out in Wiley. And he said, Russ, he said, you know, if you go up there to Washington, uh, about the fifth day you're there, the leadership's going to walk in and they're going to say, you know, we got this bill that we need you to vote for. And we know you're not going to like it. We know it's bad. You think it's bad for the country. Um, you know, we, we think it's really good because the National Chamber of Commerce wants it. We need your vote. So here's the deal. We're going we're gonna to push a factory to your district. We're going to put a certain amount of grant money towards your roads and your bridges. We're going to do a bunch of big school improvement stuff. It's all going to go to your district. We're going to make you're going to be a hero in your mm -hmm. district. You said, what are you going to do? I said, uh, you remember I told you why I got into this was my 11-year-old? I said, if the bill is bad for America, it's bad for the children of America. I'm not going to trade their interest for a few parochial business interests in the district. Mm -hmm. If you want that, if you want somebody who will consistently trade away the best interest of your children for a few narrow parochial business interests here, then you've got your congressman already. Just reelect Pete Sessions. You got it. But if you want to do something different, then you're going to have to send a different messenger, and that's going to be my guy. Have you have you had an opportunity to debate Pete in, in a public forum here locally, or not? Not really, because and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, I think that Pete's um, advisors would say, "Good God, no, don't do that." Are you yeah. kidding? There's the, the there is no upside. There's only downside. Yeah. And um, if you debate him for more than that, you're going to bring attention to him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure that he's being advised not to do that. Now, we did appear uh, at one little thing at Northwood uh, Republican Women's. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we each just had a very few moments to, to speak and, and say some things. So, no, we really haven't. And um, I, I would tend to doubt that we will. Yeah. That's kind of sad because, um, you know, in a, in a dense area like Dallas, that doesn't happen often, if at all. But in in, in less dense cities, it, it does happen. I mean, yeah. I, I told you that I grew up in Oklahoma and, you know, uh, just like you have presidential, you know, debates, you would have, you know, debates that would be televised, you know, for congressional seats. And that would give people an opportunity to see kind of what your choice is. So that's kind of sad that that's not the case anymore. Well, I, I think you're, I think you're probably exactly right about that. Uh, I, were you suggesting that Oklahomans are less dense than Texans are? <laughs> no, I was not. I oh, was okay. not. I All was right. Not. I just, I don't want to know where we were going on that one. But no, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. But, um, 
you know, I, as I say, I can understand why Pete's campaign guy's advising that way. Be happy to to debate with. Him. But it's it's amazing to to talk with Pete uh, because he'll sit there and he'll say, "Oh, we've eliminated Common Core," and you'll go, "Pete, come on, don't don't, yeah. don't tell him that." And he'll say, "Oh, well, we've returned spending back to 2008 levels," and you're going, "Pete, you're talking about just discretionary spending. That's only 27 percent of the budget you're talking about." 2008 was the highest year of discretionary spending on history, and the reason it's gone down is because you've taken half of that deduction out of the military, and the other half has just been the wind down of the stimulus and the TARP bills. So yeah. don't give me all that garbage. Yeah. In, in 2008, the budget was $3 trillion. Today, it's $3.99 trillion. Even with my shoes and socks on, I can figure out that 3.99 is a 33% increase over three. Yeah. So, you know, you just get tired of those kinds of debates with this guy. And then I read an article before uh, we recorded this podcast that identified uh, this, this race as being one of um, the races where the the long time incumbent, there's a very good chance that that person will be unseated. So, what 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 polls are you seeing? Are you reading that that you know where where are you in relation to Pete? Pete in relation to you? You know, it's very interesting. Uh, it's you're sort of referring to what we inside the campaign call the Eric Cantor moment. Uh huh. Uh, when Eric Cantor got unseated in Virginia, uh, he was a longtime incumbent. He had all the money in the world, all the name recognition in the world, gets unseated by this guy named Dave Brad, who was a college professor. And what happened in that race was very uh, interesting. As you know, uh, they rate you as an R1, an R2, an R3, or an R4. If you have voted in four out of the last four primaries in the Republican primaries, you're an R4. If you voted in three out of the last four, you're an R3. Two out of the last four, you're an R2, et cetera. And then there's what we call our zeros. You've never voted in the primary. Yeah. So what happened in Virginia was um, the, these consultants told Dave Bratt the same thing all consultants tell their people, and that is just focus on the R3s and the R4s. Those are the people that show up to vote in primaries. And so they polled them. They sent their mailers to them. They targeted their advertisements to them. That was the total focus of the Cantor campaign. Just before the election, they polled him and went to Eric Cantor and said, you're in great shape, buddy. You got, you got your same percentage of these guys you've always had. Problem is, Dave Bratt didn't have even 10% of the money that Eric Cantor did. So all Dave Bratt could do was go out and talk to people. When you go out and talk to people, you talk to a lot of folks who are our zeros. You talk to a lot of people who are our ones. And suddenly on election day in Virginia, all these R zeros and all these R ones show up, mm-hmm. and nobody talked to them, nobody targeted them, nobody polled them, and they all voted for Dave Brat. Well, I happen to have two guys in this race who are campaigning very, very, very hard for me. One of them's named Donald Trump, and yeah. one of them's named Ted Cruz, because those guys are going to drive more R zeros than R ones who are not Pete Sessions voters. Yeah to the polls this time. And, you know, our, our whole challenge has just been simply to get my name in front of them. Yeah. It's hard to do, but and that's why it takes some money. But that's that's what we've been working on. Okay. If we can get him in a runoff with, you know, there's three, uh, there's four people in this race. 
I, there's, there's Paul Brown, there's Sherry Ruffning, there's myself, and then there's Pete Sessions. If we give Pete in a runoff, whichever one of us gets him in the runoff, Pete's going to be in trouble. So we'll see. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I hope he's in trouble. So uh, other than Ramsland for Congress.com, is there any place else that people can go to get more information about well, you and Facebook, your campaign? Facebook. You know, we've Facebook. got our Facebook page and all the social media kind of stuff and do the Twitter deal and, and the whole thing. Yeah, we've got a whole social media team underneath it. But uh, the, the website and the Facebook page are the first and are, two are, places. Are you already on. grooming your daughter to become your chief of staff? <laughs> My daughter's aspiration is to become the queen of a small, wealthy European nation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good. Yeah. She's don't, already figured out her don't, deal. Don't, don't crush her dream. No. Oh, I it's do not do to that. Think <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Russ, for joining us. And uh, everybody's listening, go to ramslandforcongress.com. Get more information about Russ and his campaign and how he thinks on the issues. Visit us at facebook.com slash insignificantotherspodcast. Again, let us know your thoughts. Let us know your ideas. And we're going to close with another comment from Russ before Super Tuesday coming up in about 48 hours. Yep, about 48 hours. Uh, please go to the polls and vote. Um, uh, since we're Republicans, you only get to vote once. Uh, you could also uh, look at other places of people who have endorsed me. You've got Senator Don Huffines has endorsed me. Senator Bob uh, Hall has endorsed me. Gun Owners of America gave me a beautiful endorsement yesterday. Citizens United has endorsed me. Uh, Kathy Adams has endorsed me. So you've got a great list of, of solid conservative organizations, uh, Alapac, uh, who have endorsed me, and you can also go to their websites and find out a little bit more about me at the same time. Well, again, Russ, thanks a ton for being here. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been you, a lot Russ. of fun. Uh, for the Insignificant Others podcast, I'm Brett Featherston. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>